0: Hey guys, Steve here.
1: Today we're going to talk about growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. Really appreciate uh, our next guest taking the time to come on. Uh, He is in the future currently. He is uh, all the way in Monday already, uh, way ahead of us. Uh, 8 a.m. Uh, yeah, 8 a.m. on Monday uh, over there in Australia. So uh, he is uh, one of the, uh, if not the uh, world's uh, biggest educator on aquaponics. He has uh, a whole bunch of different classes and things available on his uh, website. Aqu- Aquaponic was it design course? Let me let me double check so I don't say it wrong. Aquaponicdesigncourse.com uh, and uh, uh, has a wonderful range of different. Uh, um uh things available there and uh, he's built uh, facilities all over the world uh growing all different types of crops and he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh flowering crops and uh and how that and um uh how some of his experiences uh, growing those types of crops that relate to cannabis and uh, around the world so thanks a lot for coming on you're welcome i'm happy to be here i hope you yeah. can hear me okay can you good sound yeah. test there oh yeah oh that's good yeah so how how's things down there in Australia?
2: Um, well, we're probably suffering similarly to what you people are with um and this whole COVID nineteen thing where um, we're slowly coming out of shutdown, which is good. Um, all a bit overdone in my honest opinion, but anyway. The more chance of getting hit by a truck on your way home from work than you have a catching COVID 19. That's my personal opinion. I could be wrong, <laughs> but you know.
1: Um. But uh, all righty, well, uh, so tell us a little bit about, um, uh, wh- about yourself and, uh, and what you do. I gave you kind of a short intro. I'm sure you could give yourself a much better one.
2: Yeah, we've been doing aquaponics in the traditional way for 15 odd years now. And uh, some 11 or 12 years ago, we started doing training. Uh, so, you know, that's just something that's evolved over time. And as a result of that, I've traveled quite extensively around the world. Uh, doing seminars and that sort of thing. And also uh, visiting farm jobs that our students have built. And there's quite a a number of very successful aquaponics facilities now around the world, particularly in the Middle East and India, particularly. Um, Some big systems there, one acre plus in size. And uh, they're all doing very, very well, which is great. Um, Of course, uh, we've we've got literally hundreds now of uh, graduate students across the USA. Uh, That's our biggest group of students in the world. And um, yeah, we're still, we just opened another course yesterday, actually, Sunday, your time, our time. And uh, that's being subscribed at about the normal rate. So it shows that there's still an interest in aquaponics. In fact, our last course that we ran in March was our biggest ever subscription. I think that was because of COVID-19. People were beginning to realise that, hey, I've got to do something about growing my own food or being somehow a little bit self-sustainable, you know, and if not completely making sure I can contribute something to my food supply and food source. So that's basically where we're at. And of course, there's a bit of a crossover, of course, into your world there, Steve, with um, people growing cannabis. And uh, we became very interested in that when my daughter got breast cancer. And of course, uh, we turned to cannabis uh, very quickly as a, a method of pain, um, pain management. And uh, I've got to tell you, it was miraculous, the difference that that made to her. We saw it with our own eyes, um, how it helped her with her pain management. It was just unbelievable. She'd gone for probably six months, getting maybe two hours of sleep a night, you know, really bad. And when we finally got her the the, um, cannabis oil, she just used a, a small portion of it, probably as big as a grain of rice, I suspect, on her tongue. And she had 80 hours sleep that night. Amazing and that continued to happen for her. So yeah that's where that's my interest in um, in cannabis of course and and she like a lot of people I've found anyway uh, want to if they do go on to um, using cannabis as pain management they once they've had cancer they're very averse to any chemicals so they're not going to do chemicals so that's why they're attracted to um, aquaponically grown cannabis. because there's no chemical
1: input. oh yeah so uh, tell us what some of your experiences have been from uh i don't know if you've had a chance to talk to people that have done aquaponic cannabis uh that maybe have been students of yours or and if you haven't uh what have your uh, experiences been with people growing peppers or cucumbers or very similar uh uh, you know plants in aquaponics um what were some of the successful things methods that worked for them and uh um you know uh you know in terms of allegory plants if you didn't have that many with with cannabis well when um when i first started going to america to
2: do um, seminars there was nowhere in america at that time where cannabis was legal to be grown but often in classes people would put their hands up and say can you tell me can we grow really 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 good tomatoes in aquaponics (laughs) took me a little while to work out that was code for cannabis could you grow cannabis and of course, as you would well know, cannabis and tomatoes have a very similar uh, nutrient requirement profile. Uh, so, you know, if you can grow good tomatoes, you can grow good cannabis. That's what I've seen happen. And not that I've personally grown cannabis, but I've had students report back to me that that if you can get good, good tomatoes out of a system, you can get good cannabis. Now, I don't know how your experience has been in regard to that, uh, Steve, whether it's been similar or not. Um,
1: so they're they're similar. I would say peppers are probably a slightly better one in terms of of how they behave. Uh, uh, and the one thing that would be different is um, tomatoes are a little bit more tolerant of higher nitrogen, I guess, than cannabis and still give you good results uh, would be the one caveat to that.
0: Yep. Fair enough. What convinced me though, for sure was once I well, you know, I was growing nice big red tomatoes, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop, you know, believing all these people that say you could, cause I, when I started you know, five or six years ago, a lot of a lot of cannabis growers were were very uh, had a very negative outlook on uh, aquaponics, and it didn't work and it was terrible, and you weren't supposed to do it. But that, but once I started growing tomatoes, and I was growing these big red tomatoes, and that's always been the adage was that if you grow tomatoes, you grow cannabis, and that's why I, I said, okay, well, not enough. I'm gonna give it a try, and uh, never look back.
2: Yeah, I, I, I've had that report from other people as well. Um, I find your comments interesting, Steve, about peppers being a bit closer because peppers are a little bit more difficult to grow, I've found, um, than tomatoes itself. Uh, but yeah, they're very close to part of the same family, of course. Um, but um, you remember some time ago, I spoke to you about building a sand system, Steve, and we've had that running now for yeah. uh, 22 months now, actually, and keeping good records. And we're finding we're getting fantastic results out of that
1: that's good
2: we've gone yeah now. so
1: uh we had somebody ask how, how is that going because uh i saw you did the build for it but then i haven't seen much much update for it so you know i uh, was curious
2: yeah we've been we've been keeping records and doing lab tests and all that sort of stuff and we're finding getting great growth i've just started writing a book about it actually oh, um cool. rather than do it by video i was going to put a book out about it so i can show tables etc of, of uh, the lab results and um i i've, I've say this very cautiously still but i believe it's probably the way of the future for aquaponics it's extremely simple extremely simple and uh it works very very well we get massive tomato growth good good fruit setting so i'd be really keen for someone to try cannabis in it to see how it goes
0: i think we have one person in our group wasn't it like i want to chat out on the podcast, but I think we are in our aquaponic cannabis growers group, I think we have one person that was at least testing or considering doing a sand bed uh, with cannabis in it. So um, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Do you want to, for people that aren't familiar with IAVs, do you want to give a simple explanation on the difference between a, a sand-based system and traditional aquaponics? What, what makes it easier or simpler?
2: Well, it's just sand to start with. Uh, it's got to be a fairly coarse though. It doesn't work very well if it's a fine sand. And it operates on the idea of flood and drain. So you flood it. Our system, we, we flood it every every 90 minutes. We flood it for 12 minutes and the 12 minutes we've just found by trial and error is sufficient time to actually flood the beds. And then we let it completely drain for 90 minutes and so the cycle goes. And at night time, we turn the, uh, the pump off. We've got it operating on a photoelectric cell. So as soon as the sunlight depletes then the, the, the pumping cycle doesn't go on anymore. But all night still we have water circulating through the fish tank and through um, a filter, you know, a, st- a standalone filter just to keep the fish water clean. And uh, that operates all night. And as a result of that regime, we're running the system entirely off solar, which is great. It's another advantage uh, because the pumping required is much lower than you do when you're pumping continuously uh, in a traditional aquaponic system. And of course, the claims made by Dr. Mark McMurtry almost 40 years ago now, uh, that that system would remain stable once it's settled down is we're finding to be absolutely true. Our pH has settled to about 6.4. We we don't have to make any pH adjustments. And, And the whole system now, we have never ever added any additives whatsoever to it, except in the first three months, we added compost tea to give the system a bit of a kickstart. But since then we've added nothing, no potassium, no calcium, no iron, no phosphorus, added nothing. And, and, and we're getting fantastic commercial uh, testing results on our tomatoes, because that's what we're growing. Mostly in the system is tomatoes because of the idea that tomatoes are the hardest thing to grow and get a good result. So um, yeah, so we're, we're getting terrific results and it's just so simple. It just works, it requires very little maintenance. The fish are happy. Uh, The system we've got has got about 35 square metres of growing area. And we have 125 jade perch, mature jade perch, which are all about two pounds each, around about that size in the system. And um, yeah, what else is there to say? It's so disgustingly simple, it's going to be a bit bit difficult to write a book about it, actually. So
1: quick question. So uh, Australia uses metric for measurements in english for weights or they use standard for uh both
2: how do you mean you're talking about metric or
1: imperial is that what you're talking about yeah so you use kilometers or miles we we, uh
2: we use metric you know steve might become a total surprise to you but the whole world uses metric
1: except the usa oh no no it was just odd that you said pounds that was that was what i I did that I did the automatic conversion in my head because I know that you're in the USA, sorry. Oh no, it was cool. I was just, I, I just, that was what threw me off was that if they did weights on English and everything else was metric, because I thought everything was metric. <laughs> yeah. oh, I've,
2: got, I've gotten used to having students in the USA, I just automatically drop stuff, pounds and, and stuff in. I have a little bit of trouble converting ounces, I've got to be honest, in my head, but yeah, no, it's all, all, they're all about a kilo each. Some of the fish a little bit bigger than a kilo, some a little bit less, but they'd average out of a kilo each.
1: We had a, a question uh, in chat. Um, are you using any worms in your beds?
2: There are worms in there. Worms have appeared. We haven't added any at any time, but they've appeared. Now, I suspect, I don't know how they get in there, but I suspect they've gotten in there because of, um, you know, when we've transplanted plants in out of our seed grazing area, then we would have got maybe some worm eggs in there. But there's definitely worms in there. Yeah, they're, they're having a party, and um, we find if we leave a, you know, a tomato full sometimes because we fail to pick it in time, and uh, next thing you know, there's worms up from underneath into the tomato, going for their life.
1: Um. Uh, what other. Uh, what other methods are you have you worked with or experimented with maybe in the last uh, couple of years that you've also found interesting maybe in, in other directions.
2: Um, we've just experimented with supplementation in our regular aquaponic systems. Um, we don't use. We, we try to avoid using anything other than seaweed extract or kelp powder, or uh, you know, natural means like that. Uh, we make our own worm tea, and we also make our own compost tea to add to it, uh, to add to the systems, and that's how we supplement our regular aquaponic systems. And uh, we find that they're all pretty old now like the oldest one is 15 years old and the youngest one's seven or eight years old as far as regular ones go so they're all very well established and and yeah we had an interesting thing happen to us a little while ago though actually and that is the um one of the systems um we were we had to switch over to tank water for the for the whole area because we're in the middle of a drought here and our dam had gone dry so we had to switch to tank water for our systems and tank water has got no carbonates in it Tankwood, by that I mean rainwater had no carbonates in it so we had a dramatic drop in pH in one of the systems in particular and over a period of about three weeks the pH had dropped below six got down to about 5.4 something like that and interestingly what had happened is we started to have an ammonia spike now I had to think about that for a little while what was causing that but the pH getting that low was causing a, uh, a reduction in our um, beneficial organisms population. and so the ammonia being produced by the fish wasn't being processed quickly enough so we had this ammonia spike really interesting situation I've never experienced it before and of course the solution to it was to add some carbonates in the form of um, hydrated lime or calcium carbonate and um, get that ph up back up into the normal range as quickly as possible so we've seen that before too we've got a farm we built here about two hours drive from where I live for a client and He had a similar situation. He was testing his water with a standard freshwater test kit. And of course, the pH uh, reagent test in that will only read down to pH 6. So he was making the classic mistake of testing his pH every couple of days and thinking, oh, it's good, it's stable at pH 6. But in actual fact, it was drifting far lower. And when we got to the farm, because he had the identical situation, he said, I've got an ammonia spike. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm feeding the same amount of feed, blah, blah, blah. So I went up to his farm and we took the electronic test with us, and guess what? The pH was 4.4. Unbelievable. You'd wonder how the fish had even survived. And I guess they had because the uh, pH had dropped down to that, you know, over several weeks. So same routine, had to raise the pH, add carbonates. And why it happened to him was because part of the reason for him was he was using uh, town water or municipal water, which of course, once again, is very, very low if totally non-existent in carbonates in the water. So that's just something to think about, you know, for people to be aware of if you're using town water or rainwater. You can have a problem with no carbonates and a loss of um, beneficial organisms in the system.
1: What are uh, what are some of the different um, design successful designs? I know you you have a whole course on this. What, what are some of the different designs that you teach uh, uh, that are successful um in your courses
2: well we pretty much do the same thing all the time now because we've proved it works we've got several farms built using the system we have uh, a sump you know everything goes back to the sump we only have one pump which is either in the sump or beside the sump it pumps from the sump to a distribution tank or a header tank and then the water is distributed around the system to the various points by gravity and by a manifold and we adjust the flow to each system each part of the system sorry uh, at a flow rate that is suitable for that part of the system and um, yeah and then all the water flows back to the sump it's quite simple really and it just works extraordinarily well because we find the flow rate for raft beds is different to the flow rate for media beds and um yeah so you can adjust the flow individually quite easily Uh, the other advantage of doing it that way of course is you can isolate any part of the system when you need to if you want to do maintenance of some sort um, you can isolate a particular bed or a particular row of beds uh, quite easily. Uh, when it comes harvest time, you can indif- um, isolate a particular fish tank. Uh, so there's lots of advantages of doing it that way.
1: So what fish species have you seen people have a, a lot of success with in aquaponics? Well, tilapia is
2: the big one, of course, believe it or not, because it's very hardy fish. I know in some Parts of the world has got a bad reputation that people say it's awful to eat. And that's obviously because I've had a bad experience with supermarket tilapia or something. But tilapia is the big one. And after that, across parts of um, Asia and that, they use a lot of European carp. uh, In those parts of the world, they like to eat that. Uh, Once again, they're a very hardy fish as well. They survive well. In Australia, our most used fish is jade perch uh, and silver perch, which are native to Australia. Um, trout in the colder regions. People grow trout uh, very successfully. I wished I could grow trout. It was too hot where I live. Um, that's that's the, they're the main ones. In India, there's some interesting fish species that I can't even repeat the names of uh, that some of the farms use because once again they're local the freshwater local species. So the rule of thumb, if you can, is to use a local freshwater species because it's going to work better for you than. Having some exotic fish from far away. I think in America a lot of people use crappy fish. Is that one they, one they use, and bluegill,
1: bluegill, and yeah, channel,
2: and also channel catfish too.
1: Yep, yep. Channel catfish can be a little bit trickier if you're not as experienced with aquaculture, but uh, are a great option. Uh, but they are scaleless, so that you gotta gotta go, you know, deal deal with a few extra challenges because of that. Um, what uh, uh, tell us a little bit more f- about filtration there's a lot of different theories on filtration uh, what works and what doesn't that you've seen out there because you've seen quite a bit
2: well we go for the simple approach as we call it and that is using a settlement tank which is sometimes called a swill filter and sometimes called a clarifier but it's the same principle and uh, many many years ago Dr. James Ricosi wrote a paper about this and um, I don't know if he was the first one to proclaim this but he certainly said in his papers about that 20 minute rule, and that is if you pass your water directly from your fish tank through a settlement tank, and it takes 20 minutes for the water to pass through that tank, then 98% of the solids will drop out, just simply drop out, settle out. So it's the simplest form of filtration there is, and we find it's very, very effective. You can get fancy with all sorts, there's all sorts of filters that people will say are wonderful and great. Uh, but we try to promote the simple approach, especially when you're building a farm for someone in a third world country, for example, uh, you know, no good buying and installing for them, you know, a very fancy bead filter or whatever, uh, because the maintenance is too high. And whereas a settlement tank, you know, you can look, look, look into it, you can see that the stuff in the bottom, open a valve, drain it, clean it,
1: carry on. 20 minute rule, it's just that simple. Uh, somebody asked, you, have you worked with anyone growing root crops? Yes, we've
2: grown root crops extensively and we've come to the conclusion a long time ago that they are better off in a wicking bed uh, rather than an aquaponic system. You can cr- grow potatoes and carrots and all that kind of thing in a, in a media bed, but you'll get better results in a wicking bed. And the wicking bed can be part of your aquaponic system in the sense that you use fish water to water it with. Um, and, you know, you can have it there as part of your system if you're thinking about growing your vegetable supply for the home. Um, Yeah, they work extraordinarily well. You can grow anything in a wicking bed, anything at all. And that's a wicking bed, not a wicker bed. Wicking bed. W-I-C-K-I-N-G, wicking bed. An Australian invention, I have to tell you.
1: Wicker beds uh, don't hold water too well. No, that's right, yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: A number of people come up and call them wicker beds. I don't know why they do,
0: but they do.
1: Um, So someone asked, are all the systems attached to the same fish tanks in that design?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Either a single fish tank or a number of fish tanks. In larger farms, we usually have a system of six fish tanks. And those six fish tanks will feed to the same sump. And to the same uh, distribution tank and um, feed all the beds, whatever beds you've got, whether they're raft beds or media beds, and the water goes back to the sump by gravity. So the only place you pump, and of course the bigger the farm is, the more efficient it becomes to pump just from the sump to the header tank or the distribution tank, um, shorter distance to pump, and you can run everything else everywhere by gravity.
1: Very cool. Someone else asked, uh, can you use crayfish uh, instead of or alongside fish.
2: Yeah, you can they have to be in a separate tank? Um, crayfish, i think you call them crawfish in America, don't you? We call them yabbies here.
1: Um, if you're in the south, they're crawfish. If you're in the north, they're crayfish.
2: <laughs> depends where you come from, eh? Yeah. So, yeah, but they're—they're they're angry little things. They fight each other, and the—the um, the ones we have here in Australia are difficult to raise in the sense that they fight and. So some, a lot of people, especially homeowners, you know, with home systems often start out wanting to grow them and most of them abandon them after a while because they're just too hard.
1: So uh, somebody else asks: is there an ideal depth for the sand beds?
2: Yeah, we've gone with 300 millimeters or one foot, staying with that because that's standard. Um, all the grow beds we ever build are always one foot deep. So we just stick with the standard of that and, and it works very, very well we found. I think it could be a bit deeper if you want it to be, but I wouldn't go any shallower. You need that filtration. See the sand bed is your filter. And the sand is the most magnificent filter as anyone knows who has a swimming pool. The most efficient swimming pool filter you can have is a sand filter. It will collect all the solids and it really, really will. It returns beautifully clear water to your fish tank. And of course the whole idea is that the microbial activity sets up in the sand as it would in soil. And so eventually when the thing settles down, you get this fantastic microbial activity because you just got to go back to thinking about a rainforest. It doesn't matter if it's tropical or subtropical rainforest. You don't have to have a government department running in there every week spreading fertilizer around, do you? Or nutrients or part A, part B of a nutrient to make something grow because nature knows what to do. If you have got a soil-like structure and you feed it properly in other words you know fish waste uh, compost tea all those kind of things that occur naturally in, in, in nature you will ultimately i believe have all the nutrients present that are needed now i know that doesn't go over too well with people who are into hydroponics but different world i guess different world
1: um, so we had another question is, can you talk more about backup systems, especially in the loss of electricity?
2: Yeah, we believe that every system should have a backup system on it. And ours are all run on a battery bank, which is charged off solar panels. And each um, fish tank has attached to it by one method or another, a float switch, a simple float switch. That if the water level begins to drop for any reason, then... That float switch will drop and will switch on a backup system. Uh, in addition to that, we have a float switch that's attached to a relay that is kept in the open position when the mains power is on. Of course, if the main power fails, the, the contacts close and switch on a 24 volt or 12 volt um, DC pump to spray water over the surface of the fish tank because aeration is a function of increasing the surface area of the fish tank and you do that very effectively by spraying water over the surface and of course if you're drawing that water from the bottom of the fish tank you're also circulating water in the fish tank at the same time thus preventing stratification occurring so it's a very effective and cheap and simple way to have a backup anyone that doesn't have a backup system is crazy and i'm 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 just totally always surprised at the number of people that build systems some people build quite large systems and don't have a backup and they pay for it because when when it happens, it usually happens when your fish are all at a nice size, they're functioning well and you're starting to think about barbecues and the power will go off and you lose all your fish. It's devastating, devastating. In fact, it's the point at which a lot of people give up aquaponics and they don't do it anymore. They're so devastating. And they would have prevented all that if they'd had a backup system. They only need to be able to run for six or eight hours at the most because If you're away, you need some kind of an alert, I guess, to tell you that the power's gone off or a neighbour or a friend or something. But if you're, if it's at home or you're on the farm, you will know that the power's gone off. So it gives you four or five hours to do something about it. Start your backup generator or some other method that you will use to restore the power to the system.
1: So that's the story on backups. Absolutely essential. Why not? Someone asked, what worm species do you recommend for aquaponics? I've heard about red wigglers. What other ones would you recommend?
2: We've only got red red wigglers and most people seem to have red wigglers or composting worms. They're often referred to as, and they work the best. So I understand. And I think they're the ones that seem to survive the best. So why change it? Stick with them.
1: Someone else asked, can you tell us more about pest management in aquaponics?
2: Ah, we're letting all our secrets out now. We've done all sorts of things over the years to try and manage pests in an organic way. Uh, You know, garlic spray, chilli spray, molasses spray, on and on it goes. But now we simply use um, neem oil mixed with white oil and we spray during the summertime three times a week and we don't have any pest problems whatsoever. If we fail to spray though for a week because we get lazy or whatever, we have pest problems because neem oil acts more as a repellent rather than a killer. And that's why you need to apply it fairly frequently. And so does white oil, white oil works that way. And when the two are together, it's one of those cases where one and one is more than two. Uh, one and one make it make it an effective of a value of three or four in that particular instance we've found. And it just works extraordinarily well. So take that one from me. If you do that and you spray three, summertime you must spray three times a week. And you must also learn how to spray, and that's to spray up under the leaves. So many people go into a greenhouse and just wave the spray around, you know, sprinkling spray around like a priest on mass. sprinkle it around, they think that's going great. But all the bugs are hiding under the leaves, laughing with their umbrella up, you know? And you spray on top, nothing happens, the bugs are still there. You've got to spray up underneath and spray thoroughly. And if you do that with neem oil and white oil mixed, you won't have a bug. Guarantee
1: it. Awesome. I know Marty had some questions.
2: Come on, Marty, speak up.
1: What, Hi, was, that? what was that? So I know you had some questions.
0: Oh, um, <clears throat> I didn't know I had some questions, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so Is I just want. To- I
2: Relationships, I can't help you,
0: sorry. (laughs) Right? So so besides, I know we talked about crayfish a little bit, but um, are there any other uh, things you like to use for feed? Um, Like black soldier flies, or do you have any preference for being able to raise your own fish food? Um, What have you seen people be successful with uh, as far as producing your own fish food? Or alternatives, like if you know of... uh, a good fish food for your your overall diet?
2: We ran a trial for 12 months in the system we have here, uh, which has got two 1000 litre or 250 gallon um, tote tanks on it. And we put in it at the beginning of the trial, 60 jade perch in each tank, our little fingerlings, new ones. And we fed them for 12 months. One tank was fed on regular fish pellets, fish feed pellets, commercially available fish feed pellets of 38% protein and the other tank was fed for the entire time on vegetable matter that we grew on site or we harvested on site and uh, we did that for a whole year just to see what would happen and we kept fairly good records of it and we found at the end of the period of time strangely enough in the tank that was being fed on the red on the regular fish pellets commercially available fish pellets we had six deaths which we just put that down to natural attrition, which happens sometimes. And But in the one that they were fed on the vegetable matter, we had no fish deaths. At the end of the 12 months when we had a weigh-in, the fish that were fed on the um, regular fish pellets were about 15% heavier than those on the basic vegetarian diet. Now these fish we used with Jade Perch, which are by nature vegetable eaters, that's what they are. So they did very well on the diet and over the period of time, we tried all sorts of things. We'd throw old lettuce in there that we got a bit old. They eat that. We tried silver beet. We fed them um, alfalfa, and they liked alfalfa. That went well. Uh, but in the end, what we did was we started. My wife and I started juicing, so the pressings out of the juice, you know, which had carrots and cucumber and uh, you know kale and all sorts of other things, we would juice. We would mix that up with some chicken eggs, which we've got our own chickens here, and some uh, wholemeal. Wheat flour and we'd bake it in the oven, uh, spread it out so it was like a biscuit now about, um, let's say about half an inch thick and we'd bake it in the oven and produce these biscuits out of it and that was the most um, effective fish feed we found and most convenient for us because we would have that in the freezer and we made a, a fair quantity of it and we would just throw the, a, a few biscuits into the fish tank and because they were frozen they'd float so we could see the Fish come up and they'd know it, and they really loved it. So because we had chicken eggs in it, it obviously had a lot of protein in it for that from that point of view. And um, yeah, so that's a summary of how we did with that, and it was very effective. And since then, uh, we just feed mostly um, standard fish food pellets of 38% protein to all our systems. We've got seven systems we run. Uh, mostly that's because I'm getting older. I think I'm getting lazy. So it's easy to do. But I know full well now that if we had to produce our own fish food, we most certainly could uh, with the species of fish that is by nature a vegetable eater. So we've got a few of them in Australia, jade perch, silver perch, and uh, they're very good for that kind of thing. I don't know what you've got in the USA that would fit that bill, but tilapia certainly will. Tilapia will eat anything basically and and do well on it. So I I believe it is possible to be uh, sustainable in growing your own fish. The downside to aquaponics, of course, is the need for power. So that's another reason why I like the sand system and I'm liking it more and more because the power requirements for it are much, much lower than the regular aquaponics system. And we are running all solar panels and run them quite successfully. The only time we have to add mains power is if we have, let's say a week of wet weather, which is so rare these days. Uh, but if you're living in a place where you have a lot of overcast weather, then solar is not so good as you know.
0: Sorry, did you notice any difference in plant growth in your two systems when you were feeding the different stuff was or
2: that that particular trial we're going to start another one come January of similar, but we're going to separate them into two separate systems, but that one those two fish tanks were feeding into the one system. Uh, And we wanted to do that so that we knew that the water temperature and water conditions were were exactly the same for both for both lots of fish. So uh, come January, we're going to run another one. We'll set up the same system, but we'll split it. And we'll have you know, two different sets of grow beds for it. So we can have different water. We'll run that and see what kind of growth we get. I think the growth might be a little bit lower, but then again, it might not either because we're adding the chicken eggs, you see, into the feed, which is, which is going to give it a lot of protein. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see. And of course, then we'll do some lab tests on the, um, on the tomatoes we grow, of course, and see what kind of nutrient we get out of it and see how good it really is. In the final analysis, that's the only way you can do it, is with a lab test and find out what's in the leaves of the plants and the water in the end. And you've got to do it over a year too. It takes a long time to do these tests to get any real results out of them. Because you can't gauge something on just a couple of months. Particularly with aquaponics, you've got to allow the system to settle and that can take four or five months anyway before it settles down and starts to behave in a normal pattern. And, and of course, if you start with fingerlings as well, you know, small fish, they have to grow and get some size to them. So that could take three or four or five months anyway. So you need to do at least a 12 month trial. That's what I believe. I think that's the holy grail of it. When, I, when I've read Dr. Mark McMurtry's papers, um, that was what drove him. Um, he, he didn't get any notoriety much, which is, a, which is a bit of a shame, I think, that his work didn't get much notice. Um, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people that actually knew him. And evidently he was a person, as they say, with a very unfortunate personality. It's the nicest way of putting it. And um, he didn't make many friends. In fact, he made a few enemies. And I've tried to find out why it was his work was never taken much notice of. And that's the only reason I can find or come up with. Because, um, you know, when, when I first started doing the sand, a number of people told me not to waste my time, because if it was any good, it would already be being done. And that, that kind of thing drives me on to say, well, why isn't it being done? Is that the only reason? Um, you know, like monkey sees as monkey does. It's a bit like this COVID-19 thing. The whole world, all the leaders have all copied off each other and locked everyone down and not tried to find a different way of doing things. And I think that's a bit like that in the aquaponics world too, you know. Um, anyway, we found that his system works pretty well. And what drove him to experiment with it was he wanted to... Come up with a system that was simple to operate and easy to operate and could be done in third world countries where electricity was limited and also facilities like, you know, material for floating rafts, for example, was limited and all that sort of thing. So he figured, well, sand is pretty much everywhere. And all just needs a fish tank and some fish. And we'll see how if it'll work. And his experiments, if you take the trouble to read his paper, they're quite a, they're quite astonishing, actually, the results he obtained. <coughs>
1: So uh, what, um, uh, I know that you've um, helped uh, work with some people that are doing some some interesting stuff, I believe, with cosmetics as well. Do you want to touch on that? Uh, there's a lot of people that are doing uh, cannabis products and, m- and might want to diversify uh, and, and do that as well. Or maybe they're limited on canopy space right now, but they could bring that space online and, and grow those types of crops to support their business until they could get that licensed. Uh, uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit?
2: yeah the information I have from that is from a very large aquaponics farm built by two of my students in South Korea. Actually, when I was there it was covering hundred sixty five thousand square feet. That's a big farm. And they were produ- producing at that time mostly um, leafy greens, and they had started producing cucumbers and were just starting to produce tomatoes. I believe now the farm is about a third bigger again now what it was then. Staff of 100, can you believe that? Um, a massive operation. And they had branched into, into supplying uh, cucumbers and leafy greens of different kinds uh, to be used in cosmetic manufacture. And the cosmetic manufacturers had um, tested the stuff and had, uh, you know, laboratory tested and found that the aquaponically produced products had a far better uh, nutrient profile than anything else they'd tested before, either grown hydroponically or in organic garden, organic farms. So that was something. And of course, that opened up a whole world for that particular farm to produce these products for these manufacturers because cosmetics, organic cosmetics are very big in South Korea. Um, As the owner of the farm described, he said, Koreans are very sensitive about the skin. You know, they want to keep their skin nice. I guess most people are, I guess, but they seem to think they're more worried about that than anyone else. And that's more important to them than anything else. And so that opened up a whole world of, of producing crops for the cosmetic industry. And I think it's a very – and, of course, the interesting thing is they projected their sales for that that would increase over the next six months by 25%. And we've actually got a video about that in our training course and students often ask, how can they increase by 25% in six months? That seems like a wild claim. And the claim is because of the increased pricing they're going to be getting for their cosmetic product that they're selling to cosmetic companies. So, you know, I think that's a large untapped field really for for regular aquaponics growers uh, to look at and suss out. Um, Those markets that add value, you know, add value rather than just selling lettuce at the farmer's market on a Sunday morning. There's gotta be ways to add value.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of aquaponics is still kind of stuck on the lettuce model um, because that was the one thing that was kind of shown that was easy, but uh, there's a lot more potential that that aquaponics has. What's some of the other uh, non-lettuce crops that you guys have uh, grown over the years?
2: Well, we've experimented with a lot of uh, different Asian greens. We supply a restaurant at the moment that's um, run by a Thai fellow. He's got two restaurants, very successful restaurants. Actually, we built a farm for him because he's that, Keen on aquaponics, he wanted his own farm. And um, you know, he's got a lot of different plants. And I've got to be honest, I don't even know what they are <laughs> that he's got there and grows them quite well and uses them in his uh, different recipes that he has. So, you know, there's a lot of specialty crops that you could, as a farmer, a grower, suss out in your own local area. You know, find those kind of restaurants that do things differently and supply them rather than just trying to flog your lettuce off on a, on a Sunday morning at the farmer's market. And that's, that's what I think is important. Don't you Steve, it's, um, you know, people want to know, can you make a living out of aquaponics? Well, it's like any business you have to, you have to specialize. You have to be smart about what you're doing and find interesting ways to market things. And I think that's happening in the cannabis world, isn't it too? I was in Oregon last trip I did overseas before this whole, uh, you know, this foresting started was to Oregon. And I visited a few places there that were growing cannabis and they were, um, you know, had producing cosmetics of different kinds and all sorts of products. And I thought, and, they, and there was a lady running one particular place and she was very, very clever with her, um, you know, her marketing, her designs of her of her labels and things. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's a way to make more money out of a, s- a small farm than just growing lettuce for goodness sake. There you go, look at that, Steve's got one. Beautiful box, what's the design like on the front? Give us a look. You're moving a bit too fast, mate. Lovely, look at that, see, there you go. Oh, you know, See, cannabis has got a lot of um, potential in that regard, hasn't it? There's really a
1: lot of potential. Oh yeah, no, I always tell people, you want the, the best, best thing to invest in the whole cannabis industry is this right here, packaging. Because sales are only going to go up and, you know, there's only one direction that any of those guys are going to go, you know, as more and more States come online, it makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. There's more to it than just smoking it. eh?
1: Oh yeah. Well, you know, depends on what part of the industry you want to get involved in, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately here in Australia, it's still not legal. They say it is, but the big pharmaceutical companies have done a number on the government and to get a license to grow out here, you've got to be a millionaire. It's just very disappointing. Um, we're hoping that'll change a little bit, but not really at the oh, moment. still hopefully. basically in an underground industry, you
1: know. Hopefully they'll ease up. I've been working with a guy down there on a, on a license application for, for one to hopefully get a license, but uh, it's been kind of a mixed bag on the slow slog to get their, their stuff through, So, uh, which I'm sure has been for many people down there. um someone else i was going to ask as a follow-up oh um was there anything uh um that maybe you found that you added to aquaponics that worked really awesome but wasn't commercially viable or didn't really make sense but maybe you're just like holy crap oh i remember the question i was going to ask earlier that i was really Mm -hmm. dying to ask you uh so uh in in a soil you don't want to plant brassicas or things like that because they'll kind of slow down Um, the plant growth of the nearby plants have you found anything in aquaponics that you shouldn't grow near other plants or or maybe you should only grow by itself uh, or vice versa anything that's maybe synergistic to grow near each other in aquaponics specifically
2: not really steve no um when i first started doing aquaponics i planted all sorts of crazy things because you know you, you try things because that's what you can do but now we just stick with growing leafy greens and corn and tomatoes and cucumbers and all the regular things that that people eat on a regular daily basis. I certainly don't try and grow Drew's artichokes anymore or anything like that. Um, so but I don't find there's any problems. It's just like I just liken it to the rainforest floor. You know, things grow side by side because plants take up whatever nutrient they want and ignore the rest and that's how it works in nature and how it works in a good aquaponic system once it's established is, plants will take the nutrient they want and they ignore the rest. And um, there might be some plants that don't like each other, but we haven't encountered it.
1: Very cool. Yeah, no, I was just curious on that. Uh, we often do companion planting just to help with uh, of various aspects of, the, of, uh, of growing, uh, or, or we'll do bait plants as well. Uh, so I was oh, that's a good curious idea, to see. Idea. Yeah.
2: Bok choy is a bait plant.
1: Bok been,
2: yeah insects from across the world will come to a bok choy plant.
1: <laughs> Good to know uh, uh, I found uh, uh, was it cilantro cilantro is is the absolute favorite thing for root aphids. If you have root aphids in a facility you put a cilantro plant in there within 48 hours they will find it.
2: Eggplants another one for plant eggplant aphids love eggplants for some strange reason. So we, we like to grow eggplant plant because we like to eat it. And so we spray that very carefully, three days a week to keep the aphids away. If we don't, man, the aphids are in there. Like as if the a good world, world aphid convention being carried out.
1: Eggplant's good because Aureus love to hang on on eggplants. So it's a good uh, banker plant too, aside from just being a, a good ba- uh, bait plant.
2: What did you I'm say? You?
1: Aureus is um, the pirate bugs. You know Might. pirate bugs? Yeah, so the, the genus is aureus. There's three different species they use in the United States, so we just call them aureus just to make it easier for everybody, um, but um, uh, uh, peppers such as um, uh, like your um, ornamental peppers or peppers that are continuously flowering really rapidly, uh, chili peppers, anything like that is, is a good banker plant because they can feed on the pollen and when they don't have protein to feed on they can jump over and feed on the pollen instead so um but the 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 insect or the the insect insect is aureus o-r-i-o-u-s aureus or did i spell that wrong somebody in chat want to correct me um, but aureus they're called minute pirate bugs they they're really awesome for cannabis they're really great generalists to release with lace wings um, if you're going to do a, especially a, a good combo uh, lace wings them and rove beetles can fly through a greenhouse and and, and immediately gravitate towards any uh, problem area if you have a hot spot that you don't know about uh, they'll all hunt it down um, they're, they're very good at that the downside with aureus is they can bite you um, they will leave uh, welts on you that are similar to mosquito bites uh, if you uh, screw with them, but uh, they are very, very good little pest uh, a predator and very easy to keep around if you have banker plants, such as uh, the rapidly flowering peppers, or uh, in your case, we were talking about eggplants. Uh, anything that's going to con- continuously produce heavy amounts of pollen uh, is, is going to help them uh, uh, s- oh, stick cool, around.
2: Interesting piece of information. Thank you.
1: Yeah. There's quite a few different other, you know, rove beetles and and lots of predators will fall back to feeding on pollen as a secondary source. Uh, uh, again, if you don't have any insects around, that's a good thing, but they got, you know, you don't want them to go away. So it gives them something to feed on and they can kind of, yeah. it's not their favorite food, but it's a survival food.
2: Yeah. Oh, good, good information. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: uh, any other, uh, anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, what's How do people find out more about your classes, uh, whatever some of the different classes that you offer? Um, We got about 10 minutes left. What are some of the different things that you offer uh, uh, for people to to educate themselves? Because you have quite a wide range of different educational tools.
2: I'm just typing uh, address in here. I don't know if my chat goes through. I don't know. know. That's our main website. And our other website is... um, design course.com and that's the one we run our online course through which is our biggest course that we do and of course we do face-to-face courses which has been decimated a little bit by the whole COVID thing Um, but hopefully soon that will go away or go back into the background somewhere and we'll be able to continue running them Uh, but that's that's mostly what we do and uh, those online courses have been very successful we've got a facebook page which is just aquaponics design and we've got 650,000 followers on that which is massive and uh, just shows the overall interest there is in aquaponics and sustainable growing uh, around the world and it's just amazing our our follower group is the biggest group is the USA the second biggest group is India now and then the third biggest group is Australia and then followed by Europe and of course you've got all sorts of other countries in between there Saudi Arabia and you know, the Arab, the Arab countries have been decimated by COVID. Um, you don't hear much about them in the news. Um, but they've been decimated. Of course, a lot of people there are starting to think about food supplies and how can they maintain stuff? You know, uh, when airplanes stop flying, people can't get supplies from all sorts of places. And it's made a lot of people start to think about growing food, at least as much as you can. I doubt if you can grow all your food in your backyard, but you could certainly grow a lot to help you through tough times. Yeah. Apart I was, like
0: was going to say definitely seen an uptick in people being interested in producing their own food or as much as they can. You know, I feel like sometimes people, you know, don't do what they can just because they say, oh, well, I can't do everything. I can't grow enough to support myself. So I might as well just buy everything from the store. You know, you can produce a lot, even if you don't do everything for all the months out of the year. You know, you can definitely uh, provide a lot for yourself and, and save a lot. And at least have the skills so that everything doesn't, you know, go to hell in a handbasket. At least you still have the skills and some of the stuff that you need there to make it happen. So, It's yeah. you 2020. You,
1: you never know what might happen. It's 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how would we ever
2: have thought what has happened in the last nine months would ever happen? How would you, you know, a year ago, if someone would have painted the scenario, you'd have thought they're crazy. You said, how can it possibly happen? And it has happened. And, you know, people have been devastated by it. I mean, in Australia here, anyone, I guess it's the same in America, those that are on the public purse, you know, the bureaucrats, they're totally unharmed by it. There's wages to drop out of the sky every fortnight. Uh, But those that are in private enterprise, those that are trying to grow, um, you know, run a restaurant or, Tourism or anything like that they just there's thousands of them here in Australia have just been sent totally broke. They'll never recover of losing their houses, and the bureaucrats don't care. They, they say they do, but they couldn't actually care less. We had a report here recently where someone was saying, some real estate bloke was saying that there's a, a transfer of wealth is going on. There's people people in private enterprise are losing their homes, and guess who's buying them? Cashed up public servants. <laughs> So, you know, but anyway, it's another another whole subject. It's a good reason for us to try to uh, be self sustaining as much as we possibly can. I think if you live on a small suburban block, it's amazing what you can grow in a very small space using aquaponics or wicking beds or something similar. All you gotta do is change your diet a little bit and be a little bit more leaning towards being a vegetable eater rather than a meat eater. And, um, you know, you can grow stuff it's amazing what you can grow and grow relatively easily actually
1: oh yeah you can grow anything i've found in aquaponics sometimes you might have to adjust your method a little bit but you can grow and how the roots are set up but other than that you can grow uh anything in aquaponics for sure even cactuses we've we've germinated cactuses in aquaponics
0: have you really proved
1: that you could do it oh yeah i got pictures to prove it
2: we have massive aloe vera plants growing in our gravel beds. We, in fact, we pull them out and throw them in the compost pile, and they still continue to grow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah aloe
2: vera like you've never seen before. And of course, that's supposed to be a desert plant growing in aquaponics. It doesn't make sense, but it does.
1: Oh, yeah. We've we've germinated plenty of prickly pear cactuses uh, yeah. and then transplanted them into soil afterwards just to accelerate that early growth stage and stuff like that. So. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, um, anything else you'd like to share with people uh, before we let you go?
0: Hey, Steve, there was one more question from Chad. They were asking yeah. if they can still sign up for your class that started yesterday.
2: Yeah, of course. Well, this is sign up week as we call it. And we run through till about Thursday or Friday until the class is full up. And, um, yeah, and then uh, week one starts next Sunday morning. And the way it works is every week there's another batch of lessons are uh, I released, you know, opened up for you to see and to, and to watch the videos. Uh, there's a comment section under each video where people ask questions about the video. And, and once a week I run a webinar on Zoom, just like you guys are doing now for our students. And um, that's interesting because I run it at my time is 11 a.m. in the morning, Friday morning. And that, uh, that San Francisco time for that is about 5 p.m. in the afternoon before, on the Thursday afternoon. various other time slots around the world of course and um that works really well we get students get on particularly students from india and those places who uh don't have english as their first language so they can understand uh the verbals better than they can read the stuff i think sometimes but we still have a lot of people from around the world on that and that works very very well all the videos are all subtitled in english so if my accent is a problem for you you can read the words (laughs) i don't have an accent actually Uh
1: You well see to me, I just came back from Zimbabwe, right? So like the British Zimbabwe and British Australian is like not that different. So to me you just sound normal, but I can understand other people have
2: problems. Yeah. People tell me I have an accent, but there's the old saying no one has an accent until you leave home.
1: What was that? I'm sorry.
2: No one has an accent until you leave home.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, sharing your knowledge.